0: Thank you. Lord, have mercy on us. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 19. We'll read in just a moment. Today is Good Friday, children. Have you ever asked the question what is so good about the day that we call Good Friday? Isn't it the day that Jesus died? Why do we call it Good Friday? Well, you all know Mrs. Surratt. She posted something on Facebook today. It was actually a, a comic strip from a comic that was popular when we were younger called BC. And the, the cartoonist was a Christian. And so at Easter, he would always post uh, messages that were, uh, that were very much focused on the Lord. And so there are these two prehistoric cavemen types. And one character says to the other, I hate the term Good Friday. My Lord was hanged on a tree that day. And his friend says, if you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? He said, good. And that's what is good about Good Friday. The Lord Jesus took our place. He paid for our sins. He made the greatest possible sacrifice for us to meet the greatest possible Need. It was the greatest possible expression of love in all of human history. And I want to emphasize that word, human history, because Jesus, who is God, who is the author of history, took to himself a human body. He took to himself a human nature, still divine and human. He entered into human history. so that he could die for us in our place as fellow humans, so that he could be our redeemer, our mediator between God and men, so that he could be our great high priest. So I want to draw your attention this evening to the crucifixion. And, uh, and, and recognize uh, various elements of that where he was arrested, he was falsely accused, he was tried really in a, in a very illegal trial. He was turned over to a Roman governor He was tortured on a cross. I'm going to read of that now and then we'll focus our attention more directly on that declaration. It's finished. But please follow in John 19, I'll begin reading in verse uh, 16. <clears throat> Pilate had uh, just said I don't see what the need is Why well, don't you know he's your king and they said we have no king but Caesar they demanded his crucifixion and so verse 16 so he delivered him over to them to be crucified so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha there they crucified him and with him two others one on either side and Jesus between them Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews were, uh, read this inscription at, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written. I've written. So he did what they wanted him to do, but he kind of offended them a bit in the process. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's from Psalm 22, which I read earlier. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and that would be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge to fill the the, uh, sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our Lord suffered that day the worst possible form of death, the worst and most grotesque form of torture imaginable. Uh, D.A. Carson described crucifixion in this way. He wrote, in the ancient world, this most terrible of punishments is always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. Stripped naked, And beaten to a pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours or even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with his legs and pull up with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body. But since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. What he means is this. Jesus' wrists, uh, hands, and his feet were nailed to the cross to hold his weight up. But as he hung there, his diaphragm pressed up against his lungs so that he couldn't breathe and as he pulled against those nails ripping into his flesh to free up his lungs so he could catch his breath once again, the searing pain shot through his body and when he succumbed to that, he went back down and he was just this constant heaving back and forth until he ultimately suffocated and died. Now, as terrible as that physical agony was, and it was terrible, the true nature of his suffering extended much, much deeper because not only did he he experience the very worst that man could meet out, the very worst that man could impose on another, he was suffering in those moments the very wrath of God you and I deserve for our sins. We sang in the hymn, Smitten, Stricken, and Afflicted, and that's my favorite hymn about the death of Christ. It's just incredibly rich. But the, the second verse says this, tell me you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. My friends, hear me. We cannot imagine what he experienced physically on the cross. But the reality is there are some who have. There are some who've experienced that same suffering, but none will ever experience the intensity of the wrath of God compressed on the Lord Jesus in those hours. Even those who spend eternity in hell, they're paying for their own sins. They're not paying for the sins of a a numberless mass of people from every tribe and language and people nation compressed into that period of time Jesus endured a degree of suffering none would ever ever be able to or have to experience and I'm thankful that he hung there in my place Now you may have heard the, uh, of the seven last words of our Lord or the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross these are seven statements that he made while he was hanging there heaving for breath as it were and we see something of the agony he experienced as he cried out the things he said from the cross. But the first thing I want you to see, uh, and I'm going to read through those seven last words, how great his love is for those he came to save. In Luke 23, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I can't imagine a heart so big, so magnanimous, so so uh, 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 concerned for others and not for himself, that even in those very moments he could pray for their forgiveness. In Luke 23, as the dying thieves, one is mocking him, joining in with the, 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 the mocking, and another says, don't you realize we deserve what we're getting? This man has done nothing wrong. And he turns and says... Uh, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And at some point, hanging there on the cross, he sees his mother Mary standing there, and he says to her, Woman, behold your son. And he says to John, Son, behold your mother. These first three sayings of our Lord showed no self-interest whatsoever. It was concern for others. And I just, I, I cannot imagine how in that intense agony he was suffering, he could think of anyone but himself. And yet he did. And yet he did. In Matthew 27, we read the, the cry that uh, is really a, a quote of David's. I don't know that Jesus was intentionally quoting David. I don't think he was. I don't think he was thinking, what is the biblically appropriate fulfillment of prophecy in this moment? It's simply the cry of his soul was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we come to John 19, verse 28, where he says, simply, I thirst. And again, it was to fulfill the prophecy, and part of the prophecy was in Psalm 22. He says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws or to the roof of my mouth. And then in John 19, verse 30, it is finished, and he breathes his last. And when he breathes his last, he said in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. There's something very interesting that I had never read before about the death of Christ until today. Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell us that darkness fell on the earth from the sixth hour till the ninth hour. That would be from noon till three. And on the, the day of preparation for the Passover, which is when Jesus was killed, he was killed during the preparation time, from noon to three is when the priests would have been busy at the temple, killing lamb after lamb after lamb that people would take home to have their sacrificial or their Passover meals. And so while the Passover lambs that could never, ever take away sin were being slaughtered one after another after another, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was put to death. And it was there he cried, it is finished. We read that he cried out, he declared it is finished and he gave up his spirit. Now John is not merely saying that Jesus gave up the fight and died. He didn't say, "That's it. It's over. The nightmares come to an end," and mercifully, God is relieving me from suffering by ending my life. No, that's not what it means at all. The word here that it is finished. It's a Greek term, "tetelestai." It indicates uh, that a task has been fulfilled or that a transaction has been completed. In John 17, Jesus said in the upper room prayer to His Father. We call a high priestly prayer Uh, earlier that uh, the evening before with his disciples he said to his father i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do same very same idea jesus had come to the end of his earthly ministry now again he's in the upper room with his disciples he was not yet on the cross but all the wheels were set in motion for his crucifixion he had fully kept the law which points to what we call his active obedience. He never once sinned. He fulfilled all of God's instructions. And he was getting ready to suffer the punishment for our sins, which is called oftentimes passive obedience. I don't like the term passive obedience because Jesus tells us he laid it down his life. No one takes it from me. I, I lay it down of my own accord. I, we'll look at that later. But. He spoke those words the night before in prayer to his father. But here this next day in the afternoon, hanging on the Roman cross, he triumphantly declares, it is finished. He'd completed the task his father had given him to do. He had drunk the cup of the wrath of God to its very dregs. And as he put that cup down, as it were, possibly turned it upside down. This is figurative, of course. But in triumph said, it is finished. The saving work is now complete. All that the Father requires for sins to be paid for have been accomplished once and for all, never to be repeated, never needing to be repeated. Nothing needs to be added to the completed work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, this is a translation of a single Greek word, tetelestai, and that word in that, in that tense can be translated, it is or has been finished, or it stands finished. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. But in ancient times, if a merchant uh, was selling a piece of property or a, an expensive item to someone, he might uh, sell it to him on time, we call that, with a promissory note. He they, they pays a down payment, and then uh, over time, he pays a little bit, a little bit, sort of like a mortgage or some kind of a loan today. And when the, the loan is finally paid off, no, no debt is left, it's complete, the merchant would write across the completed receipt, it is finished. He would write, to Telestai. In fact, I read that a deed to property, when someone sells property to someone else, uh, that deed that says, this is now your property, had to have three things. It had to have the name, the signature of the person selling, had to have the date that it was sold, and had to have the word tetelestai. It is paid in full. And that's what our Lord says. It is finished. The saving work is now complete. And the tense of that verb, is a, well, a perfect tense. If any, any Greek nerds around here, and it, it literally is the idea that it is a, 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 a an action that took place in the past, but the results continue. So it's not just saying something that something happened back there, but the emphasis is the results of that action continue forward. It is finished. It stands complete, and it always will be finished. That's the meaning of what we read in John 19 and verse 30. He completed the work of paying for our sins so that, uh, as it were, could stamp on our docket or our indictment before the Father, paid in full. He accomplished our atonement fully that he might reconcile us to God and the results of that completed act continue on into eternity. One author uh, said this about this word, tetelestai. He said three words in English, but one word in Greek, tetelestai. The greatest word from the greatest man on the greatest day in all eternity. One word, but no word ever uttered has so changed the history or destiny of mankind. It is finished. And we're reading verse 30 that then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He did not merely succumb to death. Jesus gave up his spirit as an act of his deliberate will. Turn with me. You don't need to turn. Penelope's going to put it up on the screen. In John chapter 10, Jesus teaches us there that he has authority even over his own life and his own death. He says in John 10 verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now get this. It says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning the Jews. It's, that's us. We're the other sheep. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be none, or soon there will be one flock and one shepherd. And this is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. I do not miss this verse eighteen. No one takes it from me. It's not passive. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be put on trial, to be falsely accused. He allowed that unjust travesty of law in that mock trial, which actually had three different uh, expressions or three different phases that night. He was cruelly condemned to death, and he allowed it all. He knew the place where the arrest was going to take place, and so he went there. He said, Judas, what are you going to do? Do it quickly. And he knew. Judas knew that Jesus frequently went to the Garden of Gethsemane, so Jesus made sure he was there with his disciples where Judas would come. And at one point, he says to his disciples, arise. The time has come. He knows the, so- the guards and the soldiers are coming. And so he goes out to meet them in John 18, right across the page. Verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, there's no surprise here, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? He knew the answer to that question. He was setting them up. Watch this. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in the original Greek text, it doesn't say I am he. The word he doesn't appear there. It's literally I am. Does that remind you of anything? Remember in Exodus where Moses says, Lord, who do I tell them is sending me? What's your name? And he says, I am that I am. Tell them I am is sending you. Now watch what happens. Whom you seek, Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now's your chance to make your escape, right? By a spoken word, they all, armed guards, trained with weapons, fall to the ground. He stands there and waits. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And of course they did. But verse 4 says, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward. He very could easily could have avoided this arrest at many points, but he knew his time had come. He was, that was his moment to fulfill the purpose for which God had sent him. And at many, many places, he could have avoided that. But again, that was the very nature of the temptation in Matthew 4. Satan says, I'll give you some shortcuts Just bow to me. You don't have to do all this. He knew there were no shortcuts to our redemption. By all appearances, he did uh, seem to be a helpless victim of this miscarriage of justice. But in reality, he was in control of every single detail. In Isaiah 53, it says, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened up, opened not his mouth. I find that very interesting. Because every time his accusers would come to him in the street and they would ask him questions trying to trap him or trick him or accuse him, and with just a, a question or just a very brief response, they'd walk away scratching their heads. Because, number one, he was way smarter than they were. and Number two, he had truth on his side. So in order for, them, for him to be actually convicted, by these false accusations, had he spoke given an offense, they they, they wouldn't have been able to do it. And so he opened not his mouth. He had authority over his arrest. He had authority over the trial, over his torture, and even over his crucifixion. He had authority over that actual decisive moment where he breathed his last. He gave up his Spirit He completed the work his father had sent him to do. He accomplished redemption for all of those who were given to him. and he laid down his life for the sheep and he said, "It is finished. The children, let me ask you this question. Are you listening? Can God do all things? You know the answer to that question. The answer is, yes. Say it with me. Yes. God can do all his holy will." right? Is there anything God cannot do? Well, Actually, there is. He cannot do things that are not his will. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He also cannot overlook our sin and leave it unpaid for and receive us into heaven. That'd be a denial or a compromise of his justice. His holy justice demands that our sins be paid for. And so he sent Jesus as a propitiation, a payment for our sins, so that he might maintain his justice, that he might be just and the one who justifies those who come to him through faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5 21, which is my favorite gospel verse, says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, he made him sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was punished as if he had committed the sins we've committed. He was treated as if he were guilty of all that we've done. We are rewarded as if we had lived the righteous life that he alone has lived. He is considered or rendered or, or, or uh, accounted as guilty that we might be accounted and rewarded as righteous. Charles Spurgeon said, The general religion of mankind is due but the religion of a true Christian is done. Don't you love that? Spurgeon was great. The religion, the general religion of mankind is due, but the religion of a Christian, a true Christian, is done. It is finished. There's nothing left for you or me to do to pay for our sins. Jesus became sin for us in our place, and in him we become the righteousness of God. You and I cannot add anything to what Jesus has already done for us. It's finished, and all we need to do is stop trusting ourselves. Stop trusting our own efforts or our own ideas of what righteousness ought to look like and entrust ourselves utterly and entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ because it's finished. I heard somewhere years ago that that Jesus' death on the cross was not really for our redemption primarily. It was for the glory of God. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And the reality is, Jesus did die in order to bring glory to his Father. But let me ask you this question. How is God glorified through his death? And the answer is, because Jesus died to redeem us. We're going to close our service in just a moment singing the glory of the cross. Let me read you a couple of verses. As this, or excuse me, each verse rejoices in the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God and the mercy of God. And the chorus says this, oh, the glory of the cross, that you would send your son for us. I gladly count my life as lost that I might come to know the glory of the cross. Jesus died. Yes, to bring glory to his father. What was it about his death that brought glory to his father? That he died to redeem us and make us his. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is where he accomplished the sovereign plan of salvation. It's the, it's the revelation of the greatness of God's love as he redeemed for himself a sinful people. And as we read in Ephesians, it's all to the praise of of the glory of his grace. Wesley.